From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 33, The Ghost Town of Elk Cole. Among the numerous forgotten ghost towns scattered across the Evergreen State, perhaps none is quite more forgotten and little talked about as the former town at the base of Sugarloaf Mountain, that of the tiny King County coal mining town of Elk Cole. Most locals simply referred to the place as Elko, though. Located just about a half mile west from another largely forgotten town, that of Durham, Elk Coal sat between Kangley to the north and Palmer Canasket to the south, and was smack dab in the heart of King County's coal mining country. Larger towns in the area included Black Diamond and Ravensdale. The area was originally settled by an Irish immigrant by the name of Robert Pearson, who took up a 160-acre claim that would eventually become the Elk Coal Mine and then the town of the same name. The area around the mine began to be prospected for coal in 1911, and coal mining began in 1919 with a tiny initial production of high-heating, semi-coking coal that was sold to the local community. George Perkins and the Elk Coal Company began commercial production on the Big Elk Vein in earnest in 1921, with the first coal exports reported in the same year as the start of production. The mine's success was hampered by a lack of transportation connections, which led to the construction of railroad tracks one mile east of the mine to connect it to the Northern Pacific mainline between Selleck and Kanasket in 1923. The mine also constructed a new tipple with screening facilities, erected an electric hoist for its number two mine, and purchased three new Gibbs mine rescue machines during the same year. A 1924 report by George Watkin Evans stated that the mine was hampered by geologic faulting and labor wages that were too high to make it economical. Due to this, as well as dropping coal prices in the mid-1920s, the Elk Coal Company was forced to close its doors, and the mine was eventually taken over by the Pacific Coast Coal Company, which was then the second largest coal producer in the Evergreen State. Some of the district's former residents had the belief that Pacific Coast Coal purposely destroyed the Elk Coal Mine in order to minimize competition and benefit its surrounding operations. However, this was purely speculation on their part. The Pacific Coast Coal Company, on the other hand, did demolish the entrance and a portion of the mine workings in 1928, stating that it was necessary as a protection against future collapse. The land was leased to an elderly miner by the name of Cashman, who took up the lease in July of 1928. As a result, Cashman was trapped near the old mine workings for much of the winter of 1929. During the course of a search for coal to heat his camp, Cashman came upon a new coal seam that turned out to be of commercial value. Cashman partnered with Peter Pergolios and H. Plant when he was unable to finance the construction and operation of a coal mine on his own. The Big Four Coal Company was given its name by a fourth investor, who has gone unmentioned in the history of the company. Nick Morton, a petroleum trader, purchased Cashman's portion in the company in 1930. H. Plant would be purchased out by James Bagley in 1931. In the next year, Pete Pergolios and Bagley purchased Morton's interest, and the two of them went on to operate the Big Four Mine in Elk Coal for nearly two decades. Pergolios was the mine manager, and Bagley was in charge of the mine's operations. 
In part, as a result of the presence of five unique coal seams on its site, the Big Four Coal Company profited during the 1930s, leading to increased investment in processing and washing facilities for coal production. Melvin Adams worked at the Elko Mine from 1937 until it was closed down when he retired. Adams added that water was sourced from the abandoned Hiawatha Mine, which was just up the road. All they did was run a line up to it and catch the water that was dripping out of the old shaft. Its water supply was augmented with water from the New Elk Tunnel and a neighboring marsh. Another perk for elk coal miners was the availability of a huge bathhouse where they could shower after each shift. And if you've ever seen any pictures of guys coming out of these coal mines, then you know these baths were very much appreciated. The mine, which was located on the south slope of Sugarloaf Mountain, proceeded deep into the hillside by using both water level and slope entry. The water level portal was built with rail tracks laid on 4 by 6 inch ties and a 1% gradient through the hillside to reach the water level. As the name implies, a water level entry allowed a natural system of gravity flow to dewater the mine, allowing it to remain operational. Mules and horses were employed to draw coal cars, each of which could contain around 2,200 pounds, both within and outside of the mine. George Letris, a coal miner who emigrated from Pavlini, Greece, came to the United States in 1929 to work in the Elk Coal Mines. When I worked as a miner, I was earning $4.10 per day. However, work was not always consistent, with some weeks consisting of only two or three days per week. As his wife Eva stated, Letris was able to find additional work around town. He was given the responsibility of caring for the mules that were used at the mine, but he told everyone that he was a donkey engineer. When their son, John Letris, was growing up, there was a large white mule named Kelly who was blind but still worked in the mine bringing coal trucks out of the ground. During the Elko mine disaster, Letris was the acting foreman and fire boss, which many was the first one down on the morning shift to ensure the mine was safe for the miners to enter. Letris received his citizenship papers and then went on to assist others in obtaining their citizenship papers by giving classes at Elk Coal. During their many years in Elko, Eva collected so many tons of blackberries up on the mountain, little wild ones, and sold them for 60 cents per gallon, delivered to the enormous Lee Hotel in Enumclaw, according to her husband. It was necessary to utilize a steam hoist, which was then later replaced by a 75-horsepower motor to lift coal cars up the slope to the surface, where the coal was dumped into a single car tipple. All impure coal and rock were sent to a rock conveyor for disposal at a nearby trash pile after passing through a 2.5-inch shaker screen and onto a picking belt. It was possible to generate three different sizes of coal. Steam coal, 1 inch and smaller, pea coal, 1 to 2 inch, and nut and lump coal 2 inch and greater. Construction of the Big Four Mines preparation facility was completed on the side of Sugarloaf Mountain. The prepared coal was transported directly from the facility through a short elevator to gravity bends, also known as bunkers, which were positioned over the railroad tracks. When it came to the Little Elk Vein, there was no need for regular support timbering because the strong sandstone roof was largely self-supporting, necessitating just the occasional wooden prop. However, timbering was required for the remaining four veins, the Big or Upper Elk, also known as Durham No. 1, Lower Elk, Cashman, also known as Victory, and an unknown vein that was originally assumed to be the famed McKay. The roof was supported by three P-sets of second-growth Douglas fir timber, which were common in the construction industry. A three-piece set is a traditional wood framing arrangement in which two upright or vertical timbers with diameters ranging from 10 to 16 inches are used to support a horizontal log. 
split, or sawn legging boards were used to connect recurring sets of legging boards that were 8 to 10 feet apart in order to hold the roof up for mine safety. It is noteworthy that there were no fatalities at the Elk Coal Mines during their 33-year history of coal production, during which 850,000 tons of clean coal had been produced. There were, however, a few scares along the way. During a cave-in at a coal mine in 1950, coal miner John Wolte was trapped for two days, resulting in extensive newspaper coverage before his recovery. While confined for 54 hours, the official report states that he was not gravely hurt and was in fantastic spirits when a shot of black coffee with sugar and alcohol was administered. Wolte was rescued by a number of local area coal miners, including Fred Davis, Bill Moses, and Jack Darby. At the time, the mine's managers were David J. Williams and Henry Benson. A healthy respect for the dangers of mining existed between Melvin Adams and a Greek miner from Durham named Nick Hannes, who worked alongside Adams. The cave-in of coal and rock that kept two guys for a little more than two days without food or water was a particularly memorable experience, according to Adams. The feeling of digging and shoveling about in search of a person was horrible. You consider the possibility of inserting a pick into a corpse. Nick Hannes himself was fortunate in that he was kept out of harm's way while working at the Durham mine. There was an explosion there one time, Hannes recounted, but he was at home because his wife was expecting her third child at the time. Miners from Elk Coal would frequently go to Durham, a nearby coal mining town, to work in their mines. The three-story brick hotel owned and ran by Jonas Morris and his wife Maggie served as a community hub in the area. Besides being a hotel, the Durham also functioned as a boarding house where Maggie Morris cooked for up to 60 miners at once. They had miners meetings in the top floor in the 1920s, recalled Aileen Gregovich, who also recalled going to dances at that location. A banquet room was also available at the hotel, and it was here that Jonas's parents, George and Mary Ann Morris, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary on Christmas Day of 1926. Aileen Gregovich was the proprietor of the Elk Coal Store and Fuel Station, which was directly across the street. In addition to having a penny candy counter and serving ice cream cones, the store provided a limited selection of canned and packaged groceries. In the living quarters behind the store, one of Aileen's sons, Bob Estby, studied music. He eventually went on to become a well-known choir director and chess team coach at Enumclaw High School. Margie Marcus recalled fondly the cookhouse that was maintained by Harold and Bertha Downing, where little dances were occasionally held when she was a child growing up in Elk Cole. In many ways, Elko was similar to Durham, which was only over the road and up the hill. In addition to bachelor quarters, there was also a wash house for miners. A large scale was in place, and individuals could drive up and purchase bags of coal right there on the spot. Margie created an image of a little mining camp with a bunkhouse and 20 huts and homes where men with delivery carts provided service to the town's residents in a 2006 interview with the Voice of the Valley. Mr. Bigger from Kent arrived with a large quantity of fresh fruits and vegetables. Other wagon vendors were Mr. Christensen of Enumclaw, who sold fresh meat, a Greek called Vangel of Enumclaw, who sold fresh fish, and Joe Lausch of Vizi, who sold milk. In the event of a baby's birth, Dr. Leo Desmarchant of Enumclaw and Dr. Sweet of Selleck would travel to the area to help with the delivery. Bill Bryant, Bernal Combal, and Leonard Floth were in charge of delivering the Seattle Star, the Tacoma News Tribune, and the Enumclaw newspaper to their respective locations. Students from Selleck Elementary School and Enumclaw High School were transported to Selleck by Robert Hunt and Mr. Etsby, who both served as bus drivers. 
Pearson's business was directly across the street from the Hunt family's residence. A hobo camp was once located across the railroad lines from the Hunt residence. Margie recalled that they used to be referred to as bums and that they would travel from home to home begging for money and provisions. The next one would know if it was a good house if they marked the home with chalk if they received something there. Although all coal from the mine was brought to market by rail in the first year of operation, by 1929, the size of motorized vehicles and the development of home consumer markets had prompted more than half of the coal to be moved by roadway. When it came to the Big Four mining operation at Elk Coal, the rising population in western Washington, the increased number of furnaces in Seattle houses, and most crucially, a drop in the number of local coal mines all helped to boost its success between 1930 and the early 1940s. A total between 25,000 and 40,000 tons of coal were produced yearly throughout the 1930s, with an annual average production of 25,750 tons for the mining operation's entire lifespan. To the contrary, the elk coal mining operations achieved higher productivity as measured by tons of coal produced per worker per day than the usual King County coal mine. The elk coal operations, on the other hand, did not do well throughout the 1940s. It was decided to hire George Watkin Evans, a well-known consulting mining engineer, to determine whether or not the mine's operations could be saved. He stated that the mine's activities had been hampered by the sickness of the mine's major owner, Peter Pergolios, which had been ongoing for quite some time. In addition, the mine office had been completely destroyed, taking with it all of the mine's documents. By 1942, the mine was indicated to be under receivership with John C. Damascus in charge of operations. Evans's 1943 report to the War Production Board aimed to win extra funding for the mine's expansion and improvement. From 1945 to 1947, there was a significant increase in coal output, which was supported in part by the beginning of surface mine stripping operations on the Big Elk Seam. However, by the late 1940s, output had declined dramatically and coal mining activities at Elk Coal had been discontinued entirely by 1953. Manual materials continued to mine the same geologic layers for clay and shale when the coal age came to an end. Surface mining equipment, primarily a bulldozer, front end loader, and dump trucks were used to extract the clay from the Elk Clay Pits. Upon arrival at Mutual's, upon arrival to Mutual's brick facility in Newcastle, the clay was processed into structural clayware. Family members left the town in droves in pursuit of other possibilities when coal mining came to its inevitable end. As the automobile helped to break the bonds that had held miners close to their places of employment, some of the huts and tiny dwellings fell into disrepair or were demolished, which was the fate that befell all of the buildings in Durham at one point or another throughout time, and also was a fate that befell many buildings in Elk Coal. The store and gas station, as well as the sign that gave Elk Coal its name, are no longer there. The store and gas station, as well as the sign that gave Elk Coal its name to the rest of the world, are no longer there today. There's approximately a dozen cottages remaining along a rural road where coal-laden trains came and departed, where miners and residents alike strolled to the Elk Coal Store or the Durham Hotel, where trucks delivered coal and subsequently clay to market, and where decades of mining are hardly discernible to the present eye today. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include the Washington Geological Bulletin, the Enumclaw Courier Herald, the Washington State Department of Natural Resources, 
1950 State of Washington Annual Report of Coal Miners, HistoryLink.org, Geology and Mineral Resources of King County, Washington by Vaughn Livingston, Jr., 1971, Coal and Coal Mining in Washington, and Black Diamond History. Thank you for listening to Episode 33, The Ghost Town of Elk Coal. Episode 34 will be released next week and will look at the history of the Puyallup Fair and the dark history of its grounds. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to Episode 32, The Warehouser Kidnapping. Episode 33 will be released next week and will focus on the ghost town of Elk Coal. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hoe. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.